Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you for joining us here on episode 90, 90. That is just a little bit away, just 10, 10 away from a huge number, from a huge number that gets us into the triple digits. It's just amazing when I say the we are on episode 90. This started as a little uh, a little project uh, a little over five years ago, and and here we are interviewing all sorts of awesome people amazing entrepreneurs. Today we have on the program Claudio Sorrentino. Claudio and his business partner Brian Balejo uh, started Body Details in 2006 where Claudio is the CEO and uh, this company has doubled in size every year since opening its first location in Coral Gables. You know they've had a couple of uh, challenging years which we're going to talk about. You know we're, we've been going through a, a challenging year now and if you're listening to this as we are putting this out in March of 2021, it's been a year. It's been a year since we uh, we were told 15 days to slow the spread. So it's been a, it's been a long 15 days, but it's uh it's been interesting times, and we've navigated these waters. You know, Body Details is a company that specializes in laser body hair removal and tattoo removal. Believe it or not, as well as they do all sorts of skin rejuvenation and fat loss. So. They're, they're up to a lot of uh, interesting things, and their business has just exploded in the South Florida market. They've been expanding into other places in Central Florida, Tampa, Orlando, and they have future plans for expansion. We're going to hear all about the journey that Claudio has taken from the time he and his business partner, Brian Balejo, started Body Details. Uh, that is now you know 15 years ago, so congrats to Claudio for a 15-year anniversary He's also working on a book and uh, some other cool things. So we are going to let you hear the rest of that story soon. Um, speaking of stories, uh, I feel like I'm in the middle of one myself because I left you all with some cliffhangers. If you listen to episode 89, uh, I had mentioned that I had moved out of my condo in Orlando and had been staying with my parents in South Florida and that I was up to some uh, some new things and I was just letting you hang and of course, uh, for some of you that know me, you've probably uh, know me more personally. You've probably heard me talk to you personally about this, or maybe you have followed some of my commentary on my social media pages. But I have actually uh, left my uh, employer, uh, National Review Institute. I had an amazing four years there. Uh, they also gave me an amazing send-off, which was weird because we did it over Zoom. But I was a remote worker long before uh, COVID-19. And so it was um, interesting uh, to uh, to start my job remote, uh, where we weren't really doing Zoom. It was just phone calls. And then I'd meet people at different events around the country. And of course, uh, different meetings. And you know, the headquarters of the organization I worked for was in New York City, uh, with some offices in DC. So I was like the lone guy in Florida, um, and doing the thing in Florida, Texas, and the Southeast. Uh, but then, of course, COVID-19 hit, and we couldn't do meetings at all. And then everybody went to Zoom. And then, oh my gosh, we basically lived on Zoom. So we had multiple staff meeting calls every week with the entire staff, seeing them on my screen every week uh, for several hours a week on, on Zoom. And then, of course, at National Review Institute, we did a lot of 
um, and they still do a lot of virtual events. Um, and we're we're starting; they were starting to bring back a couple of in-person events as I left there, but still, uh, still almost all virtual. So it's a little sad to leave them. I'm still a supporter of the organization. I think they do great, great work and much needed work. And um, I'm just a huge fan of uh, of many of the writers, but also of their founder, Bill Buckley, who's I think one of the most uh, important people. In a, in a, you know, at least in the 20th century in America, and maybe in the 20th century period. So uh, it was a, it was a great experience getting to work to further his legacy there at National Review Institute. Uh, but I, I left, and, and my final day was at the end of February, and I didn't wait much time, and I took a plane out of the United States, believe it or not, and uh, not too far, uh, just a two and a half hour flight over to a place I've been once before, Guatemala. And so I am actually recording this introduction to this interview uh, with Claudio in Guatemala, even though Claudio and I actually sat down about two weeks prior uh, when I was in uh, Boca Raton at his offices, the Body Details headquarters in Boca Raton. They have, of course, many different locations around Florida that they do their actual work, but that's where they run the business from. And Claudio and I, you'll hear on the interview, we share uh, some things in common, including both graduates of Florida Atlantic University, and um, we have some mutual friends. And I reference here in the interview our mutual friend, Bob Rubin, and Bob is um, a great friend that I've known for, gosh, 13 years now, I think, 12 or 13 years uh, fellow uh, cigar aficionado uh, like me, we we get together all the time for cigars and have just wonderful conversations. And you know, there's a lot of people that like to say that I am a good connector, a great connector. I like to just introduce people to other people, and Bob is like the same personality. It's like I can't almost can't talk to Bob, and probably people can't talk to me without us saying, "Oh, you know, he you need you need to meet. Oh, you know, I need to connect you with this person, right?" So. Uh, we both we both think the same, and that's probably why um, our circles of friends just are in all these different crazy uh, concentric circles, <laughs> because uh, we just um, we run it we run in, in a lot of the same circles, but then we we really expand, and so it's really fun. But anyway, I'm in Guatemala, and um, I'm actually beginning work uh, teaching some classes on entrepreneurship and innovation at the Universidad Francisco Marroquin. And so I have now um, moved into uh, a condo uh, here, an apartment, um, with a friend of a friend of a friend uh, who uh, who has a place that he kind of Airbnbs and found. A, I mean, it's a great place, great deal. I just love it, and it's been so welcoming. And um, uh, I'm speaking much more Spanish, I'm, and I'm only a couple days in here from when I'm recording this, so uh, it's uh, it's going to be a great experience. And we're building something here as well. So one of the reasons I left National Review Institute is because. Um, I've really been inspired by a lot of these people <clears throat> that I've interviewed on this podcast, on the Agents of Innovation podcast, and we're going to grow this into a community. So I'm going to allude to this now. You're going to hear me talk to Claudio a little bit more about my plans. And in the next few episodes, I'm going to be rolling out a little more information and a little more information to just keep you on your toes. In the meantime, you should join our community on Patreon, patreon.com. Uh, you can go uh, patreon.com backslash no forward slash i always forget the slashes patreon.com forward slash the one that leans to the right uh, agents of innovation that's it agents of innovation actually i think it might be patreon.com agents of innovation podcast but anyway you'll figure it out it's all on the uh the show notes here i can't even get my my websites right that's that's pretty bad 
But anyway, uh, yes, thank you for uh, for all of those that do support us on Patreon. We uh, are greatly appreciative. Of course, my sponsors, Frank and Jerry Gonzalez, who also sponsored me the last month uh, living in their home. Uh, and so uh, anyway, um, appreciate that mom and dad and all the great home-cooked meals. My mom set me off with some some great breaded Cuban steak and black beans and rice. For any of you that know me, that's like my favorite meal. I cannot make it. It's also uh, some sweet plantain. So uh, getting hungry right now, thinking about it, talking about it. But don't worry, there's a lot of food outside um, here in Guatemala. Not quite the same as Cuban food, but uh, but we'll 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 do. Uh, but anyway, it's a it's been a great experience. And at the end of this episode, you are going to hear a song by the Brevet, and their song that I'm playing for you today is "Locked and Loaded." I just felt that was appropriate because I feel like we're locked and loaded. Although, uh, I hope I hope there's not too many people here in Guatemala locked and loaded as I walk down the street. But anyway, we are locked and loaded for an adventure, and uh, life is an adventure. And um, you know, everyone has a story, and I love hearing their stories and telling, uh, bringing you their stories. And so uh, it's really great. Claudio Sorrentino has a story, and we're going to hear from him. Um, of course, don't forget to follow us on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, and that's all linked from our website, agentsofinnovation.org. You could also see a nice episode archive there with all the blog posts from previous episodes. And you know, uh, most importantly, though, you're listening to this podcast. If you are not yet subscribed, you know, open up your app, whatever app you're using, hit the subscribe button. You will be the first alerted when the episode goes live. Actually, you'll be the second alerted, kind of, because if you're a member of Patreon, I actually sent all um, of our Patreon supporters uh, a link about 24 hours before I make it public. So they get a private listen 24 hours in advance before it goes public. Another reason you should join. I mean, it only starts at $5 a month to join. Uh, encourage you to, to go up the ladder, $10, $20, you know, whatever you want to do. Uh, uh, to join um, per month, and it's and it really helps me out as I, especially as I continue this venture and continue trying to build something here beyond the podcast and into a community for aspiring and ascending entrepreneurs. So we're gonna we got a lot to, uh, to bring your way, and I thank you so much for making the Agents of Innovation podcast successful. And I look forward to hearing your feedback as we continue on this fearless journey. And here we go with Claudio Sorrentino. Well, as I mentioned, we have a great guest here today on the Agents of Innovation podcast, Claudio Sorrentino, the CEO and co-founder of Body Details, which is a laser hair removal and tattoo removal company. Uh, Claudio, thank you for welcoming me here to your office. Absolutely. My pleasure to have you. And we're in uh, beautiful Boca Raton, uh, Meisner uh, Park yeah. here. And uh, for those that might be seeing this on video... Right. Um, we're just in a beautiful scene right behind us. Uh, yeah. we're, we're at the golden hour here on a, on a Friday evening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like being in Meisner Park. It's just got a great atmosphere. Our team members love it. Great food, great options. It's just a beautiful place to be. Now, Claudio, um, where were you uh, born and raised? So I was actually born and raised in Miami Beach. Um, you know, at the time, the area now is Sunny Isles. It's beautiful, been redeveloped. But uh, when I grew up there, it was nothing but hotels and motels. It was a different time growing up there. But uh I'm one of the natural Floridians, one of the few. Uh, that was I, I'm the same. Actually, I was born in Miami. <laughs> That's and, awesome. Uh, 
And then we both actually are graduates of Florida Atlantic University. Correct. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And um, cool. I think uh, I didn't know you then, but mm -hmm. I think we crossed over a year or so. I graduated in 2001. Right. I believe you were there between. Yeah. 2004, 2000. I graduated. So I would have been starting around the same year you were. I was there in 2000. So yeah. sure we crossed paths at some point, Absolutely. but I'm glad to, glad to have an FAU owl here. And yeah. and uh, always, uh, you know, we uh, we also have a mutual friend who was um, uh, on the board of trustees of FAU for the last dozen years or so. Mm -hmm. And that's Bob Rubin. Absolutely. And we had Bob on a previous episode of the Agents of Innovation podcast, too. That's awesome. And it was actually Bob who was one of the people who uh, actually inspired me to also give back and become an entrepreneur in residence at FAU. So now I do that with them. And I mentor the veterans program and a lot of the business programs. There. What is the veterans program? So they have a program there that they take um, veterans who are interested in being entrepreneurs and they give them support through the entrepreneurs in residence, guide them on their business plan, give them some help, you know, in creating their model and help them, you know, sort of launch businesses coming out of, you know, previous conflicts and people who are retired outside of the military. Well, that's great, and I'm glad you're able to uh, to give back to that program. Yeah. Well, Claudio, uh, let's go back. We're gonna. I want to take the the uh, audience here a little bit through your journey as an entrepreneur. Right. And um, what you know, so you you are the founder, uh, co-founder, and CEO of Body Details. What spurred the idea to start Body Details? And tell us a little bit more about how it all unfolded. Yeah, you know, so my business partner and I, um, we met in college. We we you know he recruited me actually into a fraternity. Um, and I just wanted contacts, you know, I was originally on a pre-law track. Um, and we were always pretty entrepreneurial cause we were both broke. You know, we were both a bunch of, we grew up poor, you know, relatively speaking, I have a single mom raised two kids. Um, and we just, you know, stumbled onto an idea to promote nightclubs. And this is how we've got had our first real foray into real business. Both of us sold candy in high school to make money. And I think I've seen, I've known I a did lot. the same thing. I yeah. did it in middle school. Yeah, I think a, a lot of entrepreneurs tend to have that thing. Blow pops. And, and, yeah. yeah, I sold blow pops. I calculated, I could get these at Costco, three cents and sell them for 25. It's great margin. Um, but I went to a school in Miami. I got robbed at one point and I stopped selling candy after that. And was, but, uh, you know, so we did that. And, and we, in the fraternity, one day we went to a nightclub. We brought a bunch of people there. And the nightclub owner was like, this is amazing. There's 40 people in my club at 10 o'clock. You know, how do I get you guys to come back? And I was just like, ching, that's a business idea. I was like, you know, what if you give us a cut of the door? And he was like, done. And so um, I talked to my, you know, fraternity brother at the time. And I said, hey, we should make a promotions company and do this all the time. And he loved the idea. And then we just started doing promotions for the nightclubs in college. And it became very successful. We had all the Greek, you know, fraternities and sororities doing that. And uh, at one point, we were managing four nightclubs. You know, we had seven nights a week going. It was wild. And then we got into bus trips, special event promotions, karaoke nights on nights that weren't popular nights to go out. But it became tiresome, uh, you know, and, and cumbersome for us to manage going to school. And uh, after we graduated, you know, he decided he was going to go into the corporate world, started working for a company called The Mobile Solution, which at one point was the largest cell phone distribution company uh, in the country. And he was doing really well. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, just came out of the promotions business and was bartending to make money at the time and decided I'm going to get my master's. But I was also always into fitness and body hair sucks. Uh, you know, as blessed as I am to be Italian and Brazilian, I'm also cursed with body hair of Italians and Brazilians. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't like having hair on my back or hair on my shoulders. And so I said, how do I get this for free? That's like a free T-shirt. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, it keeps you warm in the winter, but not not my preference in, in South Florida. Um, but I was like, how do I get this for free while I'm going to be getting my master's, self-funding that, and, you know, working as a bartender? 
And so I said, maybe there's a place that will offer this if I get a job there. I had some extra time on my hands in between, you know, classes. So I found a location, I applied for a job and was hired. And, uh, and one of the benefits was sure enough, laser hair removal. And in the process of getting that service, I realized that, you know, this business is, is a phenomenal business. Um, everybody who's coming in there is interested. It was growing. People were highly excited about the fact of never having to shave again. And then I constantly had customers coming in and asking us about tattoo removal and services that weren't being offered at the location I was at. So I thought to myself, man, you know, is anyone doing tattoo removal in the area? And there was only one doctor in Fort Lauderdale, and he only spent 50% of his time here. He came from New York and uh, would come down here half the year. And so I said, man, we could corner this market, be a tattoo removal and, and laser hair removal provider, and be the only ones, and no one's doing it. And at the time in 2006, you know, this was 2005, when we were thinking about starting the business. It, it was really cutting edge, like totally new. Um, lasers have been in existence for a long time, but not that many people are doing the service, you know, popular, popularly and for cosmetic purposes. So we're like, okay, let's uh, write a business plan and see what can happen. And uh, I called my business partner, or I called my prior business partner at the time, and he was recently laid off from the mobile solution. And he's like, man, this sucks. I was doing so well, you know, I, I was making 80 grand a year, whatever it was, and they just fired me out of the blue. Wow. Um, and, and I said, what happened? And he said, well, he thinks that they were restructuring because they were trying to take the company and sell it. So they were cutting costs and all these things. And so I said, you know, we should start another company. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. He called. He's like, I, you know, he talked to me. He's like, I want to start another company. Let's do this. And he wanted to start a pest control business. And, you know, nothing against pest control. You know, we have some good friends, a good friend of ours, friends, Christine, her father is, owns Al Hoffer Pest Control, a great pest control company. But it was hard for me to imagine going from club promotions <laughs> and special events and all those things and being like a manager of VIP to the pest control business. So I said, I, I don't want to do that. I said, but the business I'm in right now where I'm working is amazing. We should do this. And I, after talking to him about it and telling him, you know, the ins and outs of the business and what I thought it could do, he loved the idea. And we had both graduated college. So we decided, let's uh, write a business plan. Uh, my business partner, fortunately, has a degree in marketing from FAU as well. Um, and so he's like, look, we need to write a business plan. Let's go to FAU. So we went to FAU, pretended to be students, um, and just went to the FAU library every day to do all the research we could, use their internet and their resources, and wrote our business plan. It took us about three and a half months. And then I said to myself, well, we have no idea how to get this money. Um, we were both broke, didn't know anyone with money, didn't really associate with anyone with money. And so we thought to ourselves, you know, we need about, I think we said we needed about 600000 to start the business is what we came up with. And so we said to ourselves, how are we going to get the money? And I said, you know what we need to do? Let's first make sure our business plan is perfect. And so I decided to pitch the person who I knew would be my harshest critic and destroy anything I wrote in there. And if it was bad, he would tell me in a heartbeat. And that was my dad. Um, so my father has never liked any idea I've ever come up with. Even when I was a kid, I was like, dad, I want to be a psychiatrist. And he's like, you would, you would F up the patients, <laughs> you know, like that was his first response to me. So I was like, this is the perfect person to pitch. And what was your dad's, uh, business background or. So my dad is a, you know, first generation Italian came from, came from Italy, came here, lived in New York, worked as a, you know, a dishwasher, then, you know, worked his way up in a restaurant. Then he started a company doing paper copies for a courthouse. You know, and, and he's a true Neapolitan Italian. Like they just, they bootstrap, they find a way to survive and they make it happen and they figure it out. Um, that it's a great, it's a great mentality to have because they're survivors. 
But at the same time, there's a lot of other issues that come with that mentality and that culture where they don't trust anyone. It's harder for them to expand because they feel like they need to be in it every day and watching everything every day. And so then at one point he started restaurants and he's always had a restaurant, but never became a restaurateur with a chain of multiple restaurants because of the element of always feeling like he needed to be there and manage everything and he sure. couldn't trust anyone. Um, and so that that's what he did, you know, but unfortunately... Um, he, he wasn't around, you know, my parents separated when I was eight and my dad didn't know how to deal with it, had to be a father to two young sons and he just wasn't around. Um, so we had a very, unique but now you're, you're just, you're post-college and you're building this business and you're coming back to dad for some advice. Right. So I mean, the, it was not, I'd say advice would be a, just <laughs> a stretch. I, I was coming back to dad because I knew if I pitched this to my father, he'll tell me if it sucked. Because that's just who he is. My father is the most oh, that's, direct. That's, uh, that's advice, I guess. <laughs> you know, I guess so. You know, but like, I, I think even if it was pretty good, if it kind of sucked, he'd say it sucked. You know, so I think it was it was the harsh critic that I needed. Um, and, and so we pitched him and we convinced him to listen. And shockingly, he loved it. It was the first wow. thing I've ever pitched him that he thought really had legs. And I was like, we were both blown away. We expected him to hate it. Um, he liked it. And then he's like, hold on one second. And he called a friend of his in New York, who's a restaurateur, very successful, who had a multi, you know, a few restaurants, you know, had a Ferrari, all the good things and said, Hey, you need to come down here. You need to hear this pitch. My son has a really good idea. And, uh, two weeks later he flew down, we pitched him and he loved it also. And so they both, uh, decided to invest in the business, Oh, awesome. which was mind blowing to us. Um, no special treatment. No, you know, I'm your son. It was, it was, you know, we were going to split the business four ways. We're going to pay them back in full on their investment before any distributions are taken. It was a, it was a, it was a pretty harsh business deal, but a, but a deal for us, the first person we pitched decided to invest. So we, we were happy and they ended up investing. Um, I think they gave us about $375,000. So not what we fully needed, but we found a way to open the business with just that much money. Well, that's great. So what are some of the things that other people listening you think might need to consider uh, when writing their business plan? And how, what did you all do too? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think the challenge around business plans today is we live in a more now economy. And so most people are looking for simplicity. And I think the way we now absorb information has changed dramatically. Um, people don't want to read a book. They don't want to read, you know, a lot of colorful words about how spectacular and awesome things are going to be. They want bullets and they want data. You know, and, and they that's what people want to see. They want, how are, how can I believe you? What's the opportunity? How What's my return going to be? And why can I believe that you're actually going to successfully do this and achieve this? Um, and, and that's the biggest hurdle to overcome. So I think most people try to sound great, but don't back it up sufficiently with support. And we did the opposite. We knew our industry statistics. We pulled all the data from the Society of Plastic Surgeons as to how many treatments were being performed a year, what the rates of growth were, what the average cost per treatment is, you know, all of those things. We got as much data behind it as possible, which made it believable. Um, and then, you know, whether or not we can execute is a function of pedigree experience or just heart and confidence, you know, so and that's what we exude anyway. And we had already been successful in another business. Um, so I think that helped give them some confidence that we could do well in this one, even though it would be a much bigger business than the one we had done previously. Great. Well, you have uh, you, you've mentioned a little bit about some of the services you offer, uh, mm -hmm. body hair removal, tattoo removal. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit more about the services that structure the company 
Uh, you're not a medical uh, person. You're you're right. a CEO. Right. Uh, but I, I don't know what goes all into all this. So so who are the kinds of people you need to start this? And right. then what are the, some of the typical kind of customers that use your services? Yeah, so we actually now have branched off into a few services. So we do hair removal, tattoo removal. We do laser skin rejuvenation, scar removal. Um, we actually also do laser fat removal now, which is phenomenal service. Very popular. Um, very popular. Very, can you eat yeah. a lot more ice cream. Very popular. Everybody <laughs> loves it. You can lose about an inch to two inches on your abdomen in, in a single treatment. Um, so, but the, the business is, quote unquote, a medical business. Um, so, you know, the... Each state has different laws and regulations around businesses. Um, unfortunately, most states have too many. Um, and in this one, the requirements are you must have a plastic surgeon or a dermatologist as the supervising physician. And the practitioners who perform the procedure, if the physician is not on site, must be advanced registered nurse practitioners um, or uh, phys physician's assistants. And so both of those are basically nurses with master's degrees in healthcare and nursing. So very high level employee that you need to hire if you're not going to have a doctor on site. If you're going to have a doctor on site, you can do it with a, you know, certified medical electrologists or, um, you know, basically anyone with a certification in providing laser services. Uh, so it's a little bit challenging in terms of who we hire. Um, and I had to convince a lot of doctors to bet on us and our ability to run a medical business and that they were going to sign and be liable for with their licensing. Um, and convince the nurses that we're worth listening to, even though we don't have a medical background. So there's hurdles there. Um, but I, I think it's important when people think about starting businesses of any kind, it's very easy to see the obstacle and then get stuck. You know, you, you see an obstacle, you get stuck and you just stare at it and you're like, I can't do this because this obstacle. And real entrepreneurs who are successful, there are always obstacles, but you tend to ignore them. You, you have to get to a point where you see the obstacle, but your sight of the goal blinds you to it. And, and so that's what we did. So it, it wasn't like, oh, I'm not a medical professional, so I can't start this business. It's how can I do this business even though I'm not a medical professional? And so that's what we did. We looked up you know, how we would do this, who we needed to hire. We partnered with good doctors. We convinced some good people to be partners with us. And now, I mean, one of our doctors is plastic surgeon has been with us, I think, 11 years now. Um, so, you know, loves the business and loves us. And it's been a great, great relationship. Well, that's great. And I really like the way you reframe that there to uh, not letting the obstacle get in your way, but seeing how you can uh, achieve your goal despite right. the obstacle. Yeah, great, absolutely. great advice for anybody, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Claudio, um, where did you open your first location? Uh, what was it like? Um, yeah. You know, what? what... So we uh, at the time, because I, the business I had worked for, I had a non-compete agreement. So here's another immediate obstacle. And I talk about this in my book. Um, but we went to a, a an attorney and I showed him my non-compete agreement. And I said, you know, this is the business I want to start. I didn't really review the documents. We had already basically written the business plan, spent months of time and energy in this. And then I started to review every paperwork I had signed with that company. And I said, uh oh, maybe we should have an attorney look at this. I brought it to the attorney who was at the time my girlfriend's stepfather. And he looked at it and he said, uh, my advice to you is don't start this business. And I was like, what do you mean? I was just appalled. He's like, don't start the company. You can't. He's like, you have a non-compete agreement that puts you, you got to, if you did start it, you'd have to open a store 10 miles away. And even then you have a two years on, you can't use their intellectual property and confidentiality that they'll sue you on anyway. Even if you're outside of the 10 miles, they'll sue you and try and get you for something that you did that they say you stole on their intellectual property. And I just remember thinking like, this is total crap. Like, there's no way we spent all this time, energy. We know we can do this. 
And so we had to figure out a way to start this company and be in the position where we were far enough away. And the only place to do that, in our opinion, at that moment, because I had worked in Boca Raton and their farthest south location was Aventura, was 10 miles from Aventura was Coral Gables. It was the best city that we had the option to do. And uh, so we opened in Coral Gables in March of 2006. And to avoid any issue, um, I wasn't even a partner on the business for the first two years because mm. I didn't want to have anything in the public that I was a partner of this business. I just was an advisor and did what I could on the business so that, you know, I wasn't a name. Um, and even though we met everything after talking to a second attorney, he's like, you'd be fine. Don't worry about it. I was like, look, let's just to be safe. Let's not get in anybody's on anybody's. Did radar. you ever happen to go back to your previous employer and ask? They called us. Yeah. Oh, they called you. They called me four year about three and a half, four years later. And they called us and they spoke to my business partner and they were like and they were selling. They were a, fran a local franchisee who owned four offices here. And they called and said, listen, you know, we're we're out, but we know how you guys started and we know where you got your ideas from, et cetera. And, you know, at this point, you know, it doesn't matter. You won, whatever. Um, and it, I just remember it was an awkward phone call and it was very weird. And and people talk to me about this time and they're like, is that, you know, do you feel like that's disingenuous or to do that to someone else? And, you know, we weren't really competing with them at the time. They didn't have a business where we were. There's more than enough demand for our services. And I tell people, if you don't start a business because another business exists, there would be literally no KFC, no burger joint other than McDonald's. There would be no Pepsi. There would be no, no Chick-fil-A. <laughs> there would be no Starbucks to Dunkin' Donuts. There would there would be literally nothing. Um, almost every business out there is some modification of a prior existing business. Um, and the question is, 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 you know, most people, if both businesses are great, the market can support both. We're in a growing world, growing population. There's a lot of demand. You know, I don't view competition as an issue like most people do. Uh, I view if, if you're in a space that's growing and has a lot of opportunity, everybody can win. Right. Um, and, and so we, that's what we did. But, you know, it's just another testament to we had immediate obstacles, immediate hurdles and immediate naysayers who said, never start this company. You can't start this company. It won't work. Don't do it. And we did it and we're wonderfully successful. Well, that's great. So you opened that first location in Coral Gables. Uh, where did you expand from there? And how many locations do you have today? Yep. And also in what geographic areas? Yeah, so we opened in Coral Gables um, in 2006. And we actually were, you know, the first year was really rough. Um, my business partner and I met every day, I remember at a hospital parking lot on Sample Road, and drove down there carpooled together to save gas, because we were only paying ourselves $400 a week every single morning. And we opened our stores because we tried to compete on hours from 8am to 8pm, six days a week. So we did that literally every day for a year, six days a week. And it was a nightmare. Um, but fortunately, in our first nine months of business, we did about 900,000 in sales. And it was awesome. And we were like, hey, we're doing really well. We talked to our partners, and we said we want to open another one. And we opened another one in Aventura. And the Aventura location was also immediately successful. And so basically, we started doubling in size every year. Um, then the recession occurred. We stopped doubling. We hunkered down. This is the 08, 09 recession. 08, 09 yeah. recession. We bootstrapped and um, really just hunkered down to survive. And then in 2014, we did uh, friends and family raise, raised about $2.5 million and started growing again. Um, and then another successful raise in 2019, raised about, uh, you know, around somewhere within $4.2 and $5 million. And the company now is 12 locations and several on the way. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, about how many employees 
do you have? And um, and I think we talked a little bit about the yeah. kinds of roles, but feel free to elaborate. Yeah, so we have 56 people working for us right now. We're a primarily female-led company, uh, 48 of our employees. No, more than that, I'm sorry. 53 of our employees are female. Um, 53 out of 56? 53 out of 56 are female. Um, and uh, we have anything from patient coordinator positions, which function quasi like receptionists primarily and patient customer service related. Um, then we have the practitioners who provide the services who are, are phenomenal individuals. And then we have uh, managers of the locations who are, we call center directors, who are the ones who handle sales and manage um, overall customer experience and overall location management. And then internally, the corporate office manages a call center, some support team members, our software development team, our controller, then some advertising personnel and some legal personnel out of this office. That's great. Well, um, how do you guys market and advertise? And um, if you can share about what percentage of your budget budget is invested in that in advertising and marketing? Yeah, so we have a huge marketing budget, but we're also in an aggressive growth mode. So right now, it's it's approximately 30% of the budget is advertising. It's a pretty big chunk of change. Um, primarily because initially our services are non-recurring. So if you if I treat all your body hair, I don't have anything more to sell you in body hair. You're done. Your hair's not growing. You leave, you're happy, you're bald from head to toe. I got nothing else to give you. Um, so I have to, if I do the same thing for your tattoo, once your tattoo's off, unless you're getting another one for me to remove in the future, I don't have anything to sell you. So at the time when we were just those two services, we had to bring patients in all the time, new patients. Because um, after I treated you and you're completed, you're happy, you're on your way, and now I got to get somebody else in here. Um, but now we have some services that are recurring revenue services. So, uh, but we still, because such a core driver of our business is those non-recurring revenue services, we still have a very heavy advertising budget. Um, and we primarily function on digital channels. So, you know, radio was all the rave. I remember I used to run radio ads back in 2007 and we'd be like, we'd be listening to a radio in an office with a call center of 12 people and the radio ad would run and everybody would shout, quiet guys, we're running. And then immediately as the ad finished, all the phones would ring. Well, you know, the, yes. we, there's podcasts you can sponsor now. Yeah, just, there you go. Like, yeah. so, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, um, uh, yeah, do you also, I, I feel like I read somewhere that do you, uh, or how do you use, if you do, uh, influencers or models right. or things like that for marketing? Yeah, so, I mean, because everything now is digital and social, so, you know, it's primarily around AdWord campaigns and social media campaigns and really just engaging with the customers uh, in an efficient way. But, you know, we have a ton of people who reach out to us. So we don't we don't pay any influencers ever. Um, we, we have no paid relationships with any influencers. But we get a lot of people who contact us and say, listen, I love your services. You know, I love your business. Is there anything I can do? Can I partner with you? You know, is there any can I get anything for free? And I'm happy to, you know, work with you guys or post on our pages, et cetera. So most of it comes from just organic demand. Um, we've had people contact us from every walk of life who, you know, are interested in our services. And then um, the other thing that we do personally is when you come into one of our offices for a consultation, we'll look you up and see, because sometimes people come in and fly a little under the radar. They don't want to be known, but the name seems familiar. And then we Google them and we find out, you know, so this person's a model, this person was a playmate, this person's an athlete, you know, a novella actor, actress, because now we serve all of South Florida. Um, we see a ton of famous people down here. It's very popular in Florida. And so those people will, will proactively say, Hey, are you interested in, you know, can we film you put a post up of you since you're here and you chose our office? And oftentimes they're just excited about our brand and they say, yes. Wow. That's yeah. great. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, what are your uh, plans for future expansion? 
Yeah, so we now have a pretty aggressive growth model to run throughout Florida. There's a lot of opportunity in Tampa area and Orlando. Uh, they're both very, you know, hugely growing uh, traffic areas. Another benefit, you know, one of the negatives to COVID is for a lot of places is, you know, those environments have caused an exodus of people who have been under lockdown for a very long time. And Florida is benefiting from that. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of people coming down to Florida. So population growth here is great. There's a lot of uh, businesses, uh, you know, that are coming down here. So we've targeted primarily Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville. And then beyond that, outside of the state, we'll be looking at Texas as a, as a huge market uh, for us. And then, you know, from there, branching out through the rest of the country. Everything's bigger in Texas. Yes, this Probably is Probably the tattoos as well. A lot of opportunity there. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of long And the bar- there's so much great barbecue. I'm sure that people need some fat Yes, uh, they, you know, that's the beauty so. of fat removal. It's just universally. <laughs> and that, that that's probably your recurring product, right? Yeah, that's, a, that's definitely <laughs> recurring. Yeah. So, uh, um yeah, you know, you mentioned the pandemic, you know, uh, let's talk about um, you, you You also mentioned the 2008-2009 recession. Right. Um, and how did you kind of weather that storm? And then the pandemic of 2020, which we're still kind of in a little bit right. in 2021, hopefully not much further. Um, but, uh, you know, you I know you benefited from uh, maybe Florida being a hot spot of people moving here. Right. But you also were probably shut down for a period of time Absolutely. in 2020. So how did you kind of navigate both of those uh, economic yeah. Uh, challenges? Yeah. So look, going back to the original recession really quickly, the challenge around there is we were undercapitalized. So the only investment we ever had was the initial investment. And then we were literally just doubling down. Every every dollar that came into the account, we put back out in growth, which is a phenomenal strategy when things are great. Um, but unfortunately, yeah. overnight, we went from sales being what they were to dropping by more than 50%. Now, anybody wow. who had... This, this is 0809? This is 0809. Yeah. So this is re- literally, Real I think, bubble. the month of yeah. September, October sale. I think we were actually on a cruise at the time because my business partner's birthday's in September. We were on a cruise for his birthday mm. and suddenly we looked at the stores and the sales were not coming in and we were like, what's going on? And then we heard about Lehman's collapse. And then that month, sales were literally, I think, 55% down of what they were, you know, trajected to be. Um, and most of your audience, I'm sure knows, imagine your income is what it is. And then the literally overnight, it's 45% of what you were making. Mm-hmm. Your bills don't drop by 55% overnight. Right. Um, but suddenly your income does. We had to really bootstrap and find a way to survive. And we went into complete survival mode. It was absolute misery. I do not wish it upon anyone. It was probably the toughest five years of my life. That's where I lost some hair. I got my all my first grays. It was it was impossible. It was. Did you have to lay some employees off? Or? We had to lay people off. We tried to you know do alternative positions, pay reductions, give people opportunities that we could in any way we could. We had to you know, really grind, renegotiate all of our deals with our landlords, renegotiate with all of our laser finance companies to try and get lower payments at the time. And really all we did all day was take calls from debt collectors and, you know, try to manage the business. And and and, and then worse, in our business, we had to keep advertising. So I had oh, to yeah. keep advertisers supporting us and find ways to work with advertisers and get sufficient payment terms. I mean, it was it was really tough. And there was a lot of periods there where we did not know if we were going to make it. And um, where my business partner and I were also trying to find ways to earn income on the side because we couldn't pay ourselves out of business. I think we paid ourselves in 2009, $6,000 that year. Wow. That was like all of our pay for the whole year. And then how did uh, COVID-19 and the shutdowns, especially the early shutdowns, how did that affect 
of your business? Yeah. So COVID was rough for us because um, this year has been great. You know, for the in the early part of the year, we were we were really in humming 2020. along. Twenty twenty. Yeah, mm-hmm. and twenty nineteen was great for us. You know, we did had a great trajectory, and then when COVID started to get scary and everybody thought hospitals were going to be overrun, um, cities were already shutting down, and we were fighting the cities on their shutdown orders, uh, and we were winning. The cities were saying, you got to shut down. You're not a, you're not an essential business. And we said, yes, we are. And and we met all the conditions under the law to be considered an essential business as a medical office. Um, and so we were winning. We had two cops come twice to our Coral Gables location and shut us down. And then we had our attorney get on the phone, speak to the city's attorney and they, they opened us up again, but then the governor shut us down, um, under a preservation of PPE order and the way his order was written it didn't really matter. If you were a business that used PPE and you were not a hospital or a emergency care doctor's office, you could not operate until the order expired. So for seven weeks, literally every one of my stores was shut down by the governor's order. And you weren't sure when that seven, you know, it was seven weeks. You weren't sure how much longer. Right. We didn't know if it was going to be 12 weeks, if it was going to be five months. We had no clue. Um, And so again, another scenario, second time in our 15 year history that overnight, all sales stopped. So we still had all our bills. We had to furlough 46 employees. Wow. And uh, we just literally grinded it out with the minimal team. I kept a person in the call center to field calls. We kept communicating as often as possible with our customers via social media and emails um, to let them know what was going on, what we were monitoring, how we were working through this, the things we were doing to try and get open as quickly as possible, the efforts we were making to make sure we were safe, you know, whenever this this was we were allowed to open. And uh, we were very blessed that our customers were very happy to stick with us and knew this would be short lived and that the order was lifted and we didn't really lose anyone. I think we only lost two employees who ended up not coming back after the furlough period. And we rehired everyone as soon as we could. Uh, And as soon as the order was lifted, we opened immediately and customers came back. I mean, we were very fortunate that we didn't really lose anyone. And it sounds like you're doing pretty well now. Yeah, absolutely. Our services have have somewhat benefited from the pandemic. And look, it's I don't want to say this anyone who maybe has lost someone. I want to be very conscientious of of the struggle around, you know, what's going on in the world right now. Um, but in any extreme environment economically, there's going to be winners and losers. In the recession, all the lower dollar places made a lot of money. Dollar stores were killing it. Walmart was killing it. McDonald's was killing it. Because when people are strapped for cash, they they spend less money and they and they shop at cheaper places. When cash is flush, Tiffany's kills it. You know, Louis Vuitton yeah. kills it. So in, in booming economies, there's winners and losers. Um, but, you know, same with pandemics. And so when this occurred, because everybody was home and a lot of people are now doing face you know, Zoom calls and people have more disposable income because they're not going out to eat because, you know, everybody sees the numbers of how many people are jobless. You know, 10 million Americans are jobless. Well, there's 340 million Americans in this country. Uh, and and the amount of working Americans is upwards in the 280 million, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. So that means the vast majority of people still have jobs. Um, so even though there was a lot of people affected by the pandemic greatly, most people were still working, but their environments had changed. So now they're not spending money on restaurants. They're spending less money on food. They're spending less money on entertainment. So their bank accounts were rising. So all these people that were considering our services now had the disposable income to do it. 
and had the time mm-hmm. because they didn't have to show up at work from nine to five every day. So now they're like, oh, I can get treatments any day I want. I can work from home. This is great. So our services saw a pretty immediate boom post uh, the shutdown where, you know, when people were preferentially not able to spend at all the restaurants and, you know, my, even my father, his restaurant of 12 years, he had to close um, because of COVID. Our business saw that benefit and, and actually grew from it. And Well, that's good. Well, so what what uh, in addition to these economic challenges, have what have been some of the other biggest challenges of your uh, company? Yeah, I think, look, I, I think people it's hard to lead teams people are can be challenging anyone who's been in any you know environment a work environment knows the difference between different personalities different cultures I, I think every strong leader today needs to really be capable of interacting with different personalities um, and, and and managing communication around different people everybody learns differently people hear things differently um, I, I think most business owners that you talk to will say one of the one of the biggest hurdles is around people in the organization. But that makes a lot of sense because most of our conflicts are people oriented. You know, m- my computer breaks, I fix it. You know, yeah. a person's pissed off. It's harder to figure out what you need to do to make that person yeah. satisfied and excited to work again. So I think that's a big challenge around businesses. Um, you know, managing capital, I think, is always a challenge, you know, just being wise with how you manage money and and let and deciding what to do. Do you grow or do you create a bigger safety net? And so those two things are a function of, you know, risk to reward analysis. Um, I, I just think that the business environment as a whole, you know, I love Elon Musk quote where he says starting a business or being an entrepreneur is like staring into the abyss and eating glass. <laughs> you know, I, and I think it's very true. You know, if you are someone who needs encouragement or needs a pat on the back or who needs to, you know, celebrate wins, don't be an entrepreneur. It's this is just not the field for you. You're it's the loneliest position you'll ever be in. You'll you'll never uh, you won't relate to most people on a lot of things because and. And, you know, I tell people this, when you're an employee, there's a lot of comfort in that. You feel a great sense of security because you're not, you don't know the inner workings of your business. You feel like it's there and it's just going to be there, which is a nice comfort. You know, my mom's worked for her firm now for 50 something years or 40 something years. It's great for her. She's always had a sense of security. And when you leave as an employee, you don't think of the company. You go home and your life is your life outside of work. An entrepreneur never gets that luxury. My business is in my head night and day, 24 hours a day. I go to sleep. I dream about this business. When my business partner and I were in the recession, we were having dreams about climbing a mountain and, and slipping and falling and, and one of us trying to help the other one up. And then, and then oh, and the whole thing tumbles and we fall down. Like It's directly intertwined to the experiences that we had every single day. And, you know, there's no one to help us through. There's no one that I can rely on to make sure that these 56 people go home and feed their families at night. All of those decisions ride on me. So it's an extremely heavy position to be in. Um, and, and so I think that's a big challenge that people don't expect, the mental toll it takes. You know, and, and fundamentally, outside of police, CEOs are one of the highest, uh, you know, groups of people who commit suicide. It's just, you know, it's, it's just a lot of pressure in the role. So, yeah, so uh, there is a lot of pressure. And I think what, all the things you mentioned, um, but at the same time, the entrepreneur must have some passion Without a doubt. For what they're doing, right? Because yeah. you, if it's something you live and breathe day in, all day, maybe all right. night, all the things you 
to be able to take that on. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. tell me about the passion side yeah. of it. So look, I what think drives you? here's the best part about it. I think there's two, there's two types of entrepreneurs. There's those who are like, who find something that they just live, breathe and emote and need to do every day, which is awesome if you're that entrepreneur. And I think we've seen a lot of those people. Um, you know, I think Musk loves what he's doing with SpaceX. I think that's his, I think that's a bigger passion for him than, you know, uh, than Tesla is. Um, and I think, you know, Jobs loved what he did at Apple, his, his innovation and creation. It was just such a passion of his. And that's awesome. And then there are others who I think like myself, when I originally started this business, who just can't work for anyone else. I've never been good at working for anyone else. I lose my mind if I'm not at the top of the food chain always in anything I do. Um, and, and, if, and, if, and, and I'm happy to work for someone else. But the second I say, hey, this is a good idea. You should do this. Your business would be better if you do. And they don't do it. I'm like, I, I need, that's it. I need to work for myself. I, I would do this better. Yeah. And so when I started this business, it wasn't that I had this sudden passion for hair removal. I just had a passion for being a leader being, and, and, and running my own show and the freedom and, you know, they say an entrepreneur is the only one who will work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week, you know, and, and so and, and that's truly what it is. For me, it's about the fact that, yes, while I may work more than most, I work on my own terms. And right. that was what I guess I'm most passionate about. And now I now I've learned to love the creation of it. It's like real world Legos. You know, when when I see a store opening that started from an idea in my head and a, a drawing on a piece of paper about where rooms would go and then to go and see it be built and see and then see customers being served there. That's phenomenal to me like that. That drives me at this point now. I, I, I'm I'm in, enthralled with the idea of growing this company and seeing people work here. You know, it's it's really interesting. This office that we're sitting in right now, we rented in 2008 this exact office. And then the recession hit and I had to tell the landlord, hey, I'm sorry, we can't proceed. We have to walk away. And we and we didn't get it. And that was it. So we were running out of a corporate office in Fort Lauderdale. And then sure enough, now what are we, you know, nine years later, um, we're almost or even more now. 13 um, years. Yeah, 13 years yeah. later, we're here in this exact office, you know, and that I rented it. And so just that, that drive to say, this is what I want to do. This is where we want to be and we'll get there. You know, that to me is, is thrilling. Um, and, and I would say to any budding entrepreneur out there who's watching, who's interested, if you can find the thing that gives you the lifestyle you want in the passion you want, it's a home run. You're going to be ultimately successful because when it's hard and when things suck and when you're absolutely miserable and you don't want to get up in the morning because you still love what you're working toward, you're going to do it. And if you don't, that's the hard part. That's that's when people quit. Now, you mentioned your teams here. Uh, do you promote from within? And what other things do you do to kind of kind of keep your team motivated and, and running yeah, in the right so, direction? So I think we, you know, I think the world has changed with regard to how people are hiring to I think, you know, it used to be all about education, education, what's your background, what's your experience? I think the better hiring is around culture. I think you can teach skill for most things um, in, in almost any business. And, you know, we live in a world today where no one really needs a college education, even though I have one and my business partner has one. So I'm not knocking college education, but you can get it if you're scrappy and you desire to by just going online. You can learn as much as anyone who has a bachelor's is going to learn or even a Ph.D. is going to learn if you really just commit the time. Um, and so now we really try to hire culture. And then if you're a strong culture fit, we try to give you every opportunity here to grow. 
um, because trust is one of the hardest things to come across. And when you find someone who's good and who's a driver and who's willing to work and loves the business and loves the culture, that person, we want to see them excel. So as the business has grown, we've had a lot of people who continue to grow. We, we have a girl who started in our call center and is now our sales director, um, you know, of the whole company. And so she's been with the business now 14 years, so almost wow. since we were inception. And we have a lot of people like that. So it, it's been a it's been a real pleasure to see people come from the individual stores and work their way into the corporate environment or work their way into higher roles in their in their facilities. But that's that's our avenue. We try not to recruit outside unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, and even if we do, the, the first thing we hire for is culture. Good. Well, I also note that you, uh, you know, first of all, this podcast, we interview entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. philanthropists and artists. And uh, so I really want to kind of get into that philanthropic element. I know I noticed that you and your company are very philanthropically yeah. involved. Yep. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the things you're uh, you're most involved with? Yeah. Uh, maybe some notable contributions or something uh, and why why this element is so important to you. Yeah. So what we found is that um, for us, there's a lot of people who benefit from our services. There's a lot of demand. And fortunately, there's a lot of demand in places that we can we're not necessarily pigeonholed to one charity. So we do a lot of service donations for raffles and auctions to, I mean, every local organization under the sun from Leukemia Society, you know, um, Red Cross, anything that people are raising money for, we typically partake in some type of donation of services so that they can um, utilize our services, which are high value and high dollar. You know, we're in the thousands of dollars for our typical services and sell those under an auction and then utilize that money for the charity. Um, and so pretty much we haven't necessarily said, OK, this is the charity. A lot of charities approach us and then we donate to those charities uh, via gift card donations for their silent auctions and, and, and local auctions. That's great. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's not a bad way to get your name out, too. Uh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Fortunately, most of the people who are bidding have heard of us and are yeah. just excited to get our services at a, at a discounted rate, which is great. Um, but we're just truly happy to be a part of the community in that sense, you know, that we can support that. And then there's some other initiatives we've looked at from a long term basis as to, you know, what we may be able to do globally around this industry and just uh, improving efficacy around the services and, and, and popularity of what we do for people who are in need of our services, because we while we treat mainly cosmetic desired services, our, our lasers are able to remove, you know, purpura, port wine stains, some of the, these things that people have that are natural birth, you know, not defects, but birthmarks that mm -hmm. some people are very uncomfortable with, you know, major markings on their face. We can remove those things. And so a lot of those things we always consider as a, a potential charitable option to give those people those services for free. That's great. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Claudio, you know, you mentioned uh, this aspect of just, you know, wanting to work for yourself. Right. Uh, I don't know if you might call that uh, being a natural entrepreneur, but just mm -hmm. observing uh, you and and uh, and seeing all that you're involved with, you, yeah. you do seem to me like somewhat of a natural entrepreneur. Yeah. But along those lines, I got a couple questions for you. So first question is, uh, what was your first job in life? And mm -hmm. If you can remember what that yeah. was, and and, uh, and and maybe you already mentioned it, but uh, and what you kind of learned from it that you might still yeah. keep with you today. So my first job, I was a busboy for my father's restaurant. Um, and I remember I was 12 years old and I wanted to s learn to scuba dive because I grew up in Miami and I was, you know, at the time a block away from the beach and I couldn't afford it. Scuba diving is an expensive hobby. And so I said, how can I get my scuba diving license and buy my own scuba diving equipment? And I said, you know, maybe my dad will give me a job. So I approached him and I said, hey, is there anything I can do here? I want to buy my scuba diving equipment. And he said, yep, you can work as a busboy. And my dad's, again, that old world Italian mentality. He didn't want anyone to ever think there was any nepotism. 
So he was extremely hard on me. And so I had to be there every day. I had to get there at 11, mop the whole restaurant. Probably harder on you than, yeah, than the other I'm, staff. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was basic. I was I was more more uh, servant than busboy. <laughs> you know, uh, what the waiters would sit in the back and smoke a cigarette, and I cleaned the tables, served the tables, picked everything. All the waiters would do was take the order, um, and I was the only busboy for the whole restaurant. Wow. But I did this every day, 13 hours a day, seven days a week for an entire summer, while all my friends were out and doing all the things that they were doing and having a good time. I was working every day. But I made about 20, I think $2,600. And I bought all my own scuba diving equipment on my own. And uh, it was a great and rewarding experience that allowed me to tie the mentality that hard work yields results. And, you know, going back to that entrepreneurial mentality, I think there are two key factors that make me a natural born entrepreneur. Uh, you know, obviously, I think I fell into the biz this business from freedom and my other business just from opportunity. But I think what entrepreneurs do that most people don't do is that when they see a problem, a lot of people think of see a problem and either just dismiss it like, oh, that sucks that the world is like this, or they even think of a solution, but never pursue it. The entrepreneur can't not pursue it, not to use a double negative. So when I see a problem and I feel like there's a solution, I immediately try to actually pursue that solution and see if it's viable and see if I can do it. Can I do it? What, what would it take to do it? And if I find that there's some path to pursuing it and, and solving that problem and making money doing it, I'm in. And so I just got a U.S. patent for an idea that I had that now I know is, can be a profitable idea. And I, and I immediately went to bat to do it, spent $22,000 on the patent, you know, and, and it was a high risk, though, because I could have not gotten it. And I never would have been able to pursue that idea. So I think, you know, that's a fundamental element of entrepreneurs that, that always do that. And I think entrepreneurs also tend to see what they want and find a way to get it. Um, they, they're, they typically, they're not the type of people who say, oh, that's pie in the sky. It, it's so, and that was me from a young age. You know, I knew I wanted scuba diving equipment. I was like, what can I do to get it? And found a way. My business partner, same thing. Whenever he wanted something, he's like, he, it wasn't that, oh, I'm just, I accept the fact that I can't have it. It was just, you're going to figure it out. And, and I think entrepreneurs are just very, if, if anything, they are the most figure it out people on the planet. The, the, the adage is true that they, they jump off the cliff and build the parachute on the way down. Like we, we don't worry about anything. We just believe in our ability to figure it out, whatever comes our way. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We're, uh, we're 90 episodes into this podcast mm -hmm. over the last five and a half years. And I uh, can think back to the episode one, my friend, Isaac Morehouse, mm -hmm. who basically said, I had to test this idea I had, yeah. and I was willing to fail yeah. just to see if it worked. Right. And he's now, he developed that company Praxis and then developed a second company now, yeah. um, Crash. Yeah. So um, it's it's worked and and he's, you know, and, and, but I think that's saying like the entrepreneur yeah. is, sees something and wants to problem solve it and right. can't rest yeah. uh, without, without doing it. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, we've heard your uh, a lot of your story now on this uh, interview uh, in this conversation. And um, we've heard a little bit of how you developed your entrepreneurial skills. You do have a college degree. Did you say you had a master's too? I, no, I was. I took master's courses, but I never got my master's. Okay, and then uh, you. I also heard, which I thought was interesting, that after you, you and your business partner graduated from our great university, FAU, um, and you had this business idea a couple years later. You then went back to the university, yes. used their resources in the library yeah. to basically uh, put together your business plan and all your Absolutely. ideas. So I thought that was interesting because it was like. 
did uh, not to knock FAU because there's I mean, but right. not to knock any specific college. Everybody has a different experience. But right. uh, was did anybody like not teach you that when you were in college or was it that you just didn't have the idea? You actually had to go out and get real world experience to yeah. then come back and use the resources. So I think what it comes down to is, is that I I wasn't studying business, you know, and my business partner was studying marketing. What was your major? My major was criminal justice and political science. I double majored. Um, and so I just, I wasn't thinking about, I, you know, at the time I thought I was going to be like a DEA agent or potentially a criminal attorney, you know, like when you're in college, you're always trying to fit yourself into whatever majors they have and, mm -hmm. and where do you fit? And, and now there's tons of great colleges around entrepreneurship and, and, you know, uh, there's a lot of great business schools, but even most MBAs are around working in businesses, not necessarily starting businesses. And so both my business partner and I weren't really thinking about, you know, because, and let me give you a simple example. We both were, it's hard when you're, when you're growing up and broke to think I'm going to start a company. It generally is because mm -hmm. your, your immediate understanding of it from culture, from watching TV, movies, et cetera, is that companies cost money. It's expensive and most fail. So it, it wasn't like, Hey, let's, let's be entrepreneurs coming out of college because there was, even if we were great at the idea part of it, we had no idea how we were going to get the capital. Um, and, and so for us, it was pretty challenging. And also for people who maybe might have the capital to give you what was your yeah, experience exactly. that, that they could rely on that that was going to be a good investment. Right. There's yeah. tons of hurdles. So like I was thinking of what was the what was sort of the, the secure thing, because that's how I was raised. My mother always did the secure thing. She got a job. She worked there and she stayed there for, you know, 50 years. Like and, and that's what she's done. And it's been great for her. You know, she was able to raise us. God bless her, um, you know, on, on her own salary and, and survive. But I, I think that's part of the challenge. I, I think there's so much risk involved. And, you know, as they say, 98% of entrepreneur, you know, businesses fail in five years. Um, and even another percentage fail by the time the 10th year comes around. Um, so I think it wasn't necessarily our avenue. So not that FAU didn't teach us. It just wasn't what we were studying. Um, mm -hmm. But at the time, still, when we did this, you know, the Internet was still popular. But you know, we were still running dial up in, in 2000 yeah. and, you know, 90 or 96, 97. There was no so iPhone. There was well, no, exactly. uh, no social media. It was a little different, you know, yeah. at that time. So FAU was a great place where we had a lot of access to computers and things we didn't have as college kids who, you know, paid our way through college. Um, so we had to use their systems and, and, and it worked though. Thank God. Well, um, you're often called upon now for advice on entrepreneurship. Shoot, mm -hmm. you're on a podcast about entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, You've, uh, you, I know you've spoken to corporate groups and uh, yeah. conferences, schools, civic yeah. organizations. I also uh, know that you're now working on a book. You referenced yeah. it earlier. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the book and what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Yeah, so it's been a, it's been a long work in progress. You know, nobody knows how taxing it is to write a book uh, until you actually get into writing it. And then on top of editing it, making sure people want to read it. But um, so the book is called Millions in Progress, working title. And uh, it's basically... Most of the books I've read, because I'm an avid reader, around entrepreneurship are either of two kinds. You either get the person who's end of life and it's a biography and they're talking about everything they've done and here's how where I am and now I'm a gazillionaire and this is all the things I did. Or you get those very early stage books written by people who who are basically charlatans, who are just, you know, have done nothing, achieved nothing and wrote a book to try and make money off a book. Mm hmm. I wanted to give people a better insight into the realities of entrepreneurship, into into the struggles of entrepreneurship, into what it's actually like 
in the middle of it, when I'm in a business that my net worth based on, you know, the paper value of this company is worth millions, but only, you know, very recently did I make a good salary, you know, what would be considered like a great salary to an average American, you know, and going through periods of making $50,000 a year, then making $120,000 a year, then making $6,000 a year, you know, and $400 a week. So I think people need to know what it's really like. You know, I think they see an image here and there on Instagram or social media that shows, you know, oh, successes. People think it's like this. And in reality, it's like this. I wanted to give that real story because in reality, it is this rocky up and down. Suddenly you're amazing and everything's jubilant and you think you're going to kill it. And then the next day you're like, oh, my God, we're going out of business tomorrow. I think people need to hear the real story. And so there's a lot of lessons in that truth. And the book talks about those things, sort of our, our, our journey in building this business and everything you can kind of expect along the way and any tips I can give you to help sort of mitigate you from suffering from the same pitfalls we suffered in that process. But it's truly it's truly an in-progress book because, you know, I, I'm working toward a position where we'll have a great, you know, large chunk of money and that I'll have to show for all this effort um, and that, that will excite people. And that's something they can follow along after reading the book, just continue to follow the journey. But I think people need that story. I think they need to see the truth of, of what it's really like. And I think it'll either inspire some to get into it or make others stay where they are and, and stick with a career path that they feel like is, is more capable for their, their, mental, their mental health. Well, I'm really looking forward to the book. I think it's going to be fantastic. And, you know, uh, we talked about this prior to this conversation, but I that's part of why I started this podcast five and a half years ago was because I was meeting people like yourself in the middle of things. And I always look at pretty much everybody I've had on this podcast. If you're on this podcast, it's because I've recognized some level of success, of course. And so I feel like I, yes, I'm interviewing uh, successful people, but I want the people, you know, when I meet somebody like you, you know, uh, if I, if I come across you because you're the CEO of Body Details. Right. Like you're somebody, right? You're right. like, you've made it in some way right. uh, for to, to sort of some level of importance. And so uh, a lot of people might meet you for the first time as the CEO of Body Details, right. um, but they don't understand what we've just talked about for right. the last hour. All those years of hard work of building it, the challenges, right. uh, maybe some failures, maybe some step backs you lost. You could pay rent. You had to yeah. you had to lose your office at one point. Yeah. You had to put some employees on hold. And by the way, that was in the middle of success too, right? right. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kind of ups and downs of business. So I kind of wanted to help people through this uh, podcast conversations with different entrepreneurs to understand the process. So I think your book, getting into the the details right. of every part of your story, is going to be really fantastic. Also, I'm going to preview something here for our listeners. This is kind of a new information, yeah. uh, but. I'm actually going out on an entrepreneurial journey now. This podcast has been um, something I've done on the side. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to launch a community of, awesome. for aspiring and ascending entrepreneurs. And Claudio, uh, one of the things we're going to do in this community, we're going to have some webinars with some of our previous and future podcast Love guests. It. And we're also going to have a uh, sort of a book of the month club where nice. we focus on self-growth, uh, entrepreneurship and all that. So um, I'd like to, as when this community starts and we're building and we're having, uh, you know, basically people that will, will be uh, members and subscribers into the community, uh, I'd love to have you back. Absolutely. Uh, we'll, we can do some webinars. Uh, you can you can basically teach the people in our community and, and interact with them directly. 
And and also, uh, perhaps we will feature your book as one of our book of the month club. That would be awesome. So this will be all stuff in the future. And I hope uh, this will be the beginning of a great uh, friendship and relationship here. Excited. Um, Also, uh, as we kind of uh, kind of bring this plane in for a landing on this interview, I would just ask you last last couple questions. Sure. Uh, What's the um, you know, if you're if somebody a lot of the people who are there's a lot of people who are listening who as you mentioned, the people you're maybe writing your book for who are aspiring entrepreneurs. Right. Um, what are some of the best ways that they could learn the skills to be a successful entrepreneur? And, you know, when I when I think about some of the things we've talked about, whether it's education, whether it's college, right. whether it's not college, whether right. it's other job skill sets, whatever, what are some of the best ways that they can, uh, can build that uh, skill set to go out there? Yeah, so look, I think... Um, there's, a, you know, obviously there's tons of books out there that can give you a lot of good base core knowledge. Um, Millions in progress coming soon. Yeah, exactly. There's tons of really good books. You know, I, I, I think uh, I think that's useful. And I think Robert Kiyosaki talks about this. He says, you know, when you're young, you should be working to, to learn, not working to earn. And and I think there's a lot of truth to that. So if you're if you're interested in starting a company and let's say you want to start a video game company, go try and get a job at a place that sells video games or makes video games. And learn the inner workings, learn the things you don't know, learn the things that aren't on the surface or in a Newsweek article or or in a Forbes you know, article about what that business entails. And that can give you a much better insight as to what you're about to face when you when you do finally make the leap. Um, I think that's super helpful. Um, you know, obviously, there's tons of programs out there now, entrepreneurship programs. There's a bunch of incubators out there. The world has sort of taken hold and recognized that entrepreneurship is a good thing, and it, they're the movers and shakers of the economy. So there are a ton of resources now that didn't exist a long time ago that that can give people the opportunity to even get early capital and and and, and start their businesses. Um, but I think one of the fundamental things that everyone can work on at home is building a sense of self-confidence because you are going to suffer mentally starting a company. You just are. And if you are someone who cannot you know, pick yourself up and convince yourself to, to move forward on your own with no one helping you and no one supporting you, you're not going to make it. it. It's really hard. And so, you know, I remember when I would go through really struggling times, I would put on a, there's a YouTube channel called Motiversity, and there's a ton of them now. And you can watch just these motivational videos. And it's just, it's, you know, back to cinematic music and just quotes and famous movie lines and things that are just uplifting and, and teach you about struggle. And, you know, the, this famous speech by Stallone, it's not how hard you get hit, but it's that you can, you know, keep getting hit and get up and keep on going, you know, and you hear these things and it just reinforces you in a moment of weakness when, when, you know, quitting is easy. There's, it's always going to be an opportunity that the next great challenge that you face, you want to quit. And, and and you can't. The entrepreneurs who make it are the ones who've gone through all of those trials and tribulations and don't give up. Um, and I've never met an entrepreneur. And now I'm a member of the BMT and several entrepreneurship organizations. And I met so many entrepreneurs in YPO and all these other things. There is not a single successful entrepreneur I've ever met who didn't have moments of complete abject failure where they were just on their last string. They're done if things if they didn't turn it around not one yeah and so and i and i love to tell people this because this is the most unknown quote in the world but i think it should be one of the most known ones but and pardon me if i'm getting the number slightly off but 98 percent of businesses fail in the first five years that's what everybody says but do you know how many second businesses succeed 
what the percentage is of entrepreneurs who fail and try again who succeed? The what second is business is over 80%. Wow. So if you knew that your odds to succeed the second time around were 80%, maybe you would. But you know how many entrepreneurs actually try the second time? Almost none. Wow. That's so it's, the it's problem. About, yeah. Failure hits you so hard, you don't try. But everything you learned in that failure gives you such an opportunity and such a high likelihood of success that all you had to do was try again and you would have made it. Wow. And so people need to know that. People need to know maybe you start that business, maybe you go out and you do it and you fail, but what you learn is going to make you so good that the next time you're going to win and you just have to have faith. Yeah, that's great. Well, um uh, we're sitting here in your office and as I was setting up for this interview, I yeah. noticed over there to your right or if your audience is listening or their left yeah. i see albert einstein over there yeah. uh, which kind of excited me because this is the agents of innovation podcast yes. and uh, very few greater innovators in in history than yeah. albert einstein and then i see this other guy he's kind of a bobblehead yeah he's got a superman uh shirt underneath yeah. his uh underneath his suit yeah uh looks a little like you yes yeah it was actually a very sweet gift uh my team members got me they took my picture and this is a custom bobblehead company and so they gave that to me as a gift, as an appreciation uh, for running the company, I think, on one of our anniversaries. And it was just a very sweet, you know, representation. I didn't choose it. They chose the Superman thing. So it was very endearing to me to feel like they feel like I'm Superman for, you know, <laughs> figuring out in the sense of the company and, you know, doing everything I can to to keep this thing going and give them opportunities to grow and do well and be successful here. Um, so that was it was just a very sweet well, gesture. And, it, and it's also kind of emblematic of what we talked about with the entrepreneur, because you know, uh, Superman is 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 sort of the guy in disguise, right? right. I mean, it's really Clark Kent on the outside, yeah. Uh, and and so it's like that Superman is on the inside, correct? Right? It's like yeah. you know, it's uh, ready to come out to save the day when he needs yes. to come to the rescue. I love that. And I also noticed here uh, we have uh, for those watching on a video here, we've got the uh, this light bulb, there you go. and it, yeah, it changes. That's what I was trying to do. Yeah, <laughs> but. But uh, this is also the light bulb is the uh, the part of the logo of the Ancient Innovation Podcast. That's awesome. So, and you know, it's a little bit uh, because the light bulb is one of the greatest uh, inventions and innovations in, uh, in in history as well. And you know, it's funny. I was just I'm in the middle of reading this book called How Innovation Works by Matt Ridley. Nice. And you know, the light bulb uh, was invented by like twenty something different people in different parts of the globe at around right. the same time, uh, because innovation. Um, it's not that it's inevitable, but the conditions of the world right. um, sort of make it inevitable. You know, Matt Ridley kind of points at why the Wright brothers were the ones that, you know, invented the airplane. But had they not done it, it yeah. would have been invented. Absolutely. Right. I mean, it's like all the all the knowledge of the world kind of coming together and the conditions. And it was just about figuring that out. But um, Thomas Edison was was, you know, he um, without getting I don't have all the details uh, right. right now, but, you know, he basically. Uh, was the most innovative uh, in bringing that invention to the marketplace right. and, and making it how to use. But anyway, speaking of that, just one of the last questions I want to ask you here is based on your experience as a, as a successful entrepreneur, um, what do you see uh, are, are necessary to, for, to create uh, for the best conditions for innovation to occur? Yeah, I think, I think you hit it in the question itself. I think necessity breeds innovation. Um, you know, it, no one is inventing, uh, you know, no one is inventing, uh, you know, a bed that's 
ultra comfortable when they're laying on an ultra comfortable bed. The problem, there's no problem there to solve. There's no, you know, discomfort is what is the motivator of change. Um, and I tell people that all the time, you know, there's a reason why 78% of millionaires are self-made, you know, receive not a dollar from their parents. There's no money coming in. There was nothing. And that's because being poor sucks. And it, it being uncomfortable and wondering where your next meal is going to come from or suffering from that environment is a motivator of change. Um, and so I tell people that all the time. If, if, you're, if you want to see change, there has to be pain points because pain points are the creators of almost every invention in the history of time. Um, when you, when, you know, and, and if you look at what some of these pain points have solved, you know, I, I remember reading somewhere that the, they were talking about the USB drive. And, you know, the USB drive has saved more trees than Greenpeace ever will. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and someone invented that because it's just annoying to carry paper files around, you know, and then saying, like, there's got to be a better, better way. And they started utilizing computers and they're like, can we do this smaller? And if I wanted to transfer files or hold a lot on a small thing. And so you, you start to do these things. What are the pain points in your life? Um, and everybody has unique ones because we all are different ex human beings with different experiences. And if you can solve for any of those pain points, you're going to be, you have an entrepreneurial idea. That's all yeah. it comes down to. The pain point around ha using candles for light and the inability to light rooms brightly and the, the risks of fires and all those things, you know, was motivating the whole world to find an alternative solution. Um, Not to mention, as we record this, our friends in Texas are freezing. Right. right? And it's like heat. Right? Exactly. Heat uh, is also 100%. And so now think about this per perfectly. We had an issue in Texas where they have a ton of wind turbines and wind turbines were freezing up. So now this scenario that was a abject failure for the, you know, the wind industry is going to create innovation around how do we keep wind turbines running in frigid temperatures? Mm hmm. That's going to be a problem that someone is now tasked to solve, and they're going to solve it. It wouldn't have happened if the turbine never shut down. Yeah. And so that's the element. So one of the – this is a, literally another chapter in the book, but your failures are your beacons of where you need to improve. And so when you experience it – you know, Mark Zuckerberg says this, fail fast, fail often. Um, there's a reason why he's saying that. Because every point of your business that's a failure and every point of your life that's a challenge to overcome is an opportunity. Um, and it teaches you something. It teaches you where there's a weakness, where, where there's something that can be improved, where there's something that can get better. And so every time we experience anything like that in life, there's opportunities for innovation. And, and, and that's why I love Einstein. That's why I love the, you know, he's a, he's solar powered. So when the sun hits him, he's constantly pointing to like, think. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, well, that's wow. That's does. amazing. This, this little uh, thing will just keep ticking, think, you that's know, awesome. so he, and I love it. And it's, you know, I tell my employees all the time when they come in here and they're like, oh, what do I do? I'm like, Einstein, like, just think for a second. Like, what would you do? What could you do in that scenario? And so I think we, we, we don't do that often enough, but that is your opportunity. You have to be in a place where something goes wrong and then you solve that problem and and, and every great business under uh, on the sun you know or on the planet has done that and yeah. and you look at apple solving the iphone you know with the iphone and what it is you know can a phone be more than a phone can it do more things you know and and every great invention in history has had that um and and you know look at look at what 
you know, again, Tesla's doing with driving. Look at Amazon solving the problem about like, how do we get things quickly? I re- I mean, you remember, you remember ordering something in two weeks, you'd wait for it to get here. Mm-hmm. Now we get mad if it's not in our doorstep in an hour. Like how and we're, quickly- And we're tracking it, <laughs> yes. right? My mom actually was tracking a package today right. and uh, it was actually uh, uh, some furniture that was coming and it wasn't Amazon. Right. I, I was like, how do you know it's going to be here between yes. 210 and 310? Uh. And, uh, and and then she was uh, she was a little frustrated. Sorry, mom, you're probably listening. But, uh, you know, that it was, it was 20 minutes later that it, you know, but yeah. you're saying, right? But that's exactly. the world we're becoming yeah. accustomed to now. Right. And it's just everybody solving problems. We all yeah. wanted to know where it is, when it is, how quickly is it going to get here? And then we all want it faster and sooner. And so now people are moving toward innovations around solving those problems. Same thing. The military is doing the same thing. You know, how do I have soldiers win battles without dying? You know, mm-hmm. so now everything's moving toward automation, drone warfare, robots. You know, we we have, you know, even soldiers now are training completely in simulators. You know, George it, Lucas, here we come. It, so. it's, we're on our way. Yeah. Like, I, I love the movie, um, you know, that uh, the Steven Spielberg movie, well, Ready Player One. I mean, yeah. that if that's not the future in 50 years from now, like it, it has well, to be. Well, you know, you started this, uh, yeah. this part of the conversation talking about USB drives solving yeah. the paper. But I was thinking, uh, I don't even use USB drives much anymore no because everything's on the cloud. Exactly. Right? Because you could you lose that little USB right. drive mm-hmm. and now you put it in the cloud right. and it's secure. But see, why did cloud become so popular though? Same reason. Mm-hmm. People were losing files. Hard drives were being pro- problematic. So someone's like, we got to make a better hard drive. Then they came out with steady states. And once steady states were good, they're like, this is great. But now how do we prevent the loss of like a fire in this office? Well, if we could do redundant cloud servers. Mm -hmm. So it's always a problem that points you to the next innovation. And so people need to stop seeing problems as these horrible things and start to see problems as the opportunities in their lives, as the beacons in their lives, as as the, the aha moment light bulbs in their lives that are saying, hey, there's an opportunity here to do something. And if you can solve this problem, you're gonna be a really successful person. And they say, you know, in the in the book about how do you become a billionaire will solve a billion dollar problem. Um, and that's the reality. The person who solves the water crisis, the person who solves food shortages around the world is going to be a, a gazillionaire because the bottom line yeah. is it's a big enough problem to solve that the money that they're going to be rewarded for solving it is going to be huge. Yeah, well, uh, this comes all the way full circle because uh, you, you, you saw uh, you needed to solve the problem of a uh, of a body hair on an Italian. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then you started a company, and now that you're, you're the CEO of Body Details, right. uh, again, hair removal, tattoo removal. Absolutely. You're based here, headquartered in Boca Raton, mm-hmm. uh, but I know you're all over South Florida and right. moving into Central Florida, and you mm-hmm. talked about Texas. So yeah. uh, where can people find you and your and your company? Absolutely. So they can visit us at bodydetails.com, and we have uh, the same basic hashtag and, and, and at channels on all social media, so at Body Details on Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. They can interact with us there. And uh, I have a website that is still under construction, but for the most part, anybody can visit and see it. It's a, you know, www.claudiosorrentino.com. So they could visit me there and uh, contact me there. And I look forward to, you know, hearing from any of you. Yeah, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And also, um, we'll, you know, everybody follows our social media. We'll post and some updates as well. Even long after this interview, we'll still continue following your journey. And also, you know, when your book comes out, we'll be sure to let our audience know. But yeah, you can follow him at ClaudioSorrentino.com and uh, BodyTetails.com. Claudio, thanks so much for being an Absolute agent of innovation pleasure. and being yeah. on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thank you so much. My pleasure.
Just for the night 